Bienvenue and uh, welcome to a Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Joining me on the phone is once again co-host Alan Niven. Of course, he had been uh, absent for a while, but uh, look at us—we're two in a row. Isn't this exciting? Oh yeah, it's very exciting. I actually, <laughs> let me get the sarcasm out of my voice. Um, if it's not obvious, I will make it plain that I really enjoy my conversations with you, and I think it's very gracious of you to include me in on these things, and I have fun doing it, so thank well, you. Well, I have no choice. I, I was looking at the uh, Alan Niven uh, Wikipedia page, and at the bottom it says, Alan is currently co-host with Mitch LaFon, so I don't know who wrote that there. I swear, uh, as God is my witness, it wasn't me, but I, apparently well, it wasn't, my... It, it, Believe you me, it wasn't me either. I don't deal with Wikipedia. And if you if you actually look me up, you'll find it's absolutely minimal, which is my preference. But um, Westwood One, that was a decade ago, wasn't it? Yeah, that that was. Uh, now, now we're fully independent and enjoying life. But uh, let us get over to today's guest. It is the one and only Ron Keel. And he has got a new album called South by South Dakota, which is a collection of cover songs from great Southern American bands. And, uh, well, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, have you ever met Ron Keel? Because he was at some point in the 80s around the Spencer Proffer stable of artists, for the lack of a better word. And, and you were in that sort of milieu as well. Do, do you know Ron at all? Yes, I remember Ron from the early 80s and he was sometimes Keel and he was sometimes Steeler, if I remember correctly. And I do remember him as being, um, he, he really tried really hard, um, but Ron never quite, I think, realized what he thought he could be or what he thought he should be. But um, he, he always gave it a good college try. And uh, ironically, um, and maybe I should feel bad about it, but I don't. Um, I was once asked by Bruce Lundvall, who was just opening up a, uh, a new label, EMI Manhattan, to go and evaluate Keel or Steeler or whatever they were calling themselves at the time. Um, as a potential signing for his label. And I actually told him, well, I don't really have to do that because, you know, we've done a lot of shows with the band and I can give you a pretty good rundown uh, from firsthand experience. And, and Bruce said, no, well, I said I'd send somebody, so if you wouldn't mind going, I'd really appreciate the favor. Well, the irony was is that I went there not expecting to have my mind changed. And I got there early enough to see the opening band and quite ironically the opening band had a stunning vocalist and I was just blown away by him I thought he had an incredible tone um, and I went back to Bruce and I said you know I really don't think that you and and Keel are going to be a good fit but their opening band I really think you should take a very serious look at. They have got a stunning vocalist, a really, really good voice. And uh, Bruce actually said, no, well, I was only going to look at the one thing. I'm not going to look at the other. And I said, well, if that's the case, 
if you don't mind, I'm going to pass on my observations to another friend of mine. And Bruce said, yeah, sure. It doesn't worry me at all. So Bruce missed out because the band is called City Kid. And they later changed their name to Tesla when my friend Tom Zutout signed them. And I liked them so much, I put them on a great white show up in Sacramento, and I got a hold of their demo. And uh, I had Jack Russell and Don Dawkin take, walk that demo into Tom's office and stick it on his desk and look at him and say, you should look at this band seriously. But, um, you know, obviously the rest is history. And we actually ended up uh, doing a great white Tesla summer tour in 88. But... That's my Ron Keel story. That's wow. We 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 like that, and we love uh, Jeff Keith. So we we can't we can't complain about that. And thank you for that because they ended up working with uh, Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero and all those uh, wonderful yep. people. Um, just real quick, uh, in eighty three, eighty four, in that in that time period, Ron Keel was temporarily the um, singer for Black Sabbath. It was all something that Spencer had put together. Were, were you aware of him being in Black Sabbath? And and just in general, what were, you, what were you sort of your impressions of Spencer? You must have met him hundreds of times over the years. <laughs> How ironic. Beautifully set up. I have never met Spencer Proffer in my life, but there's a lovely story to that. Um, Tommy Zutow had come to me three times asking me to work with a band that uh, he had signed that he was having significant problems with. And I'd been very reluctant to get involved because they were um, a group of class A fuck-ups. And uh, they were actually in Spencer Proffer's Pasha studio working on some demos and I agreed to go with Tom and talk to the band up there and listen to what they were doing in the studio. And I did end up actually sitting in with Hans Peter Huber, who worked for Spencer Proffer as his engineer, who was a lovely guy, really nice dude. And Hans asked if I'd sit in with him and and help him do the mixes. And um, that band was obviously Guns N' Roses. And Tom, because of the success that Spencer Proffer had had with uh, Quiet Riot, had decided that he'd be a good match with Guns N' Roses, that he'd be a good producer. Um, Of course, being as obstinate and opinionated as I am, I had a slightly differing perspective. I didn't think that chemistry would be right at all. And... I had to deal with the situation that basically Spencer had been promised um, guns as as a client. And I thought, well, the very least I've got to do is meet with him and sound him out and get to know him and get a feel for him and adjust my attitude accordingly. Um, You know, that's only the fair, right and proper thing to do. So we scheduled a meeting and I drove all the way across town to his studio, turned up at, on time. I'm a very punctual person. I think punctuality is a mark of respect. And was shown into his office where I was introduced to his then female assistant. 
who informed me that Spencer wasn't coming to the meeting, that he had other things that were more significant and important to do than to meet with a nobody like me. And she would go to take the meeting. And I left that circumstance with a big smile on my face because he had just given me exactly what I needed. And I took what I needed, put it in my car, drove it down to Geffen, walked into Tom Zutout's office and said, that motherfucker is not doing his fucking project over my dead fucking body. We're going to look for somebody good. And of course, we ended up finding Mike Klink. And Mike Klink was proven by history to be a moment of magic and brilliant chemistry. And that's my Spencer Proffer story. And, and how dare they disrespect the Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon co-host? It's terrible. It's a terrible thing. But <laughs> Well, I didn't. Yeah, but I didn't have that status back in that day, to be fair. I know. And, and it is quite a feather in the cap, I must say. But let us get over to uh, Ron Keel. Always a pleasure to talk to Ron. He was on the uh, Kiss tribute album I did back in 2013. Uh, and if, you know, to help out the uh, palliative care home and the, the, the local palliative care home. So uh, anyway, thank you to that. Thank you to Ron. And with that, le voici, here he is, the one, the only, Ron Keel. We are speaking with a vocalist, Ron Keel. The new album is South by South Dakota. It is a covers record of all the best of Southern rock, or uh, as we say in uh, Qu- Quebec, uh, rock sudiste. So, uh, bonjour, Ron. How are you? Man, I'm doing great. Uh, this is the best gig I'll do all day. Getting to talk to Mitch LaFon, getting in the ring with one of the heavyweights. I'm fired up to talk to you and your listeners, and I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so so let us get into this uh, South by uh, South Dakota album. A lot of great bands you've uh, covered on here. Blackfoot, 38 Special, Molly Hatchet, and so on and so forth. Well, talk to me a little bit about the inspiration for doing this, and... And also, just how is Southern rock different than some of the more classic rock and roll? Because I, I have to tell you, some of these bands, they don't come to Montreal. They don't really seem to come to the North, Northeast, quite frankly. So talk to me about this and that sort of special brand of Southern rock. Well, this is classic rock. It does have those Southern roots. and But Southern rock is a way of life. It's a, a mindset. It's something that as you know, Mitch, because you've been covering me since the Iron Horse days, 20 years ago, when I kind of combined my metal heart with my cowboy attitude and created this hybrid style of music, which I called at the time hard rockin' southern country metal, which is a pretty convoluted title to call it. But once you mix the screaming guitars and the screaming vocals and songs about real life with the thundering drums and, and, and all that, it sounds like southern rock. That that label has been applied to me personally for over 20 years now. And, and when I was growing up, as you recall, because you're a huge Kiss fan, I know, and so am I, we would see some of these Southern Rock op- Southern Rock bands opening up for the, the hard rock and metal bands. Uh, Blackfoot and Marshall Tucker Band and the Outlaws, they would, they would be on the same bill as some of our arena rock and heavy rock, hard rock heroes. Back then, there wasn't such a delineation between this is Southern or this is not. It's all classic rock. I'm really proud of this new record, South by South Dakota, in so many ways because it's the first time in my entire career since 1983 when I went in the studio with Ingve Momstein to cut that Steeler album. And every album I've done since, we've been on a mission 
okay, it's time to cut a record. You write the songs, you rehearse, you do your pre-production, you prepare as best you can. You go in the studio, you lay it down, and you're on a mission. This time, it was totally an accident. It was totally organic. It uh, did not happen by choice. We were in the studio cutting last year's Fight Like a Band album, and we'd go in in the morning and just horse around, have a cup, couple of cups of coffee, and play some 38 Special or some Marshall Tucker. And then we'd do our gig, and we'd do, cut the songs for Fight Like a Band. And at the end of the day, we'd wind down by having a cocktail or two or five, and we'd play some Almond Brothers or some Skinner or whatever. So after about four or five tunes worth of this, I realized my producer was recording the stuff. And one day I said, hey, play that back for me. What we do yesterday? And he played it back. I think it was Train Train. And he played it back for me. And that's really special. That's, it's, it's, it just happened that way. And it was totally organic. And then after about five, six tunes, I realized I had the foundation for an album. And I said, let's make it, uh, it's, the, the title just popped into my head. Not a stroke of genius, just one of those ideas that I'm very thankful for. Let's call it South by South Dakota, because we live in South Dakota. This is home to me. Sioux Falls, South Dakota is where I live. I'm looking out at the river right now and the trees and the forest and my log cabin in the middle of nowhere in South Dakota. So that title just grabbed me by the balls. And I, I thought, we've got five or six songs. We've got a title. Let's add some tunes to it. What don't we have? Well, we don't have uh, a Skinnerd song, but we've been doing this red, white, and blue tune in the show, which is the first single for the record. Uh, so we decided to cut that. The uh, Creedence Medley, which is a live recording from our very first gig, got to include that. Our version of Ghost Riders in the Sky, produced by Henry Paul from The Outlaws, got to include that. So all of a sudden, we're sitting here looking at the foundation for a record. Also, for the first time in my life, I can go on into an interview like this and brag about how great the songs are. Because, you know, before it was my songs, and, you know, I can't just tell you and your listeners and your audience how great my songs are. I could tell you without a doubt that these songs are some of the best ever written. They are a, a part of the fabric of the American songbook and the the classic rock songbook, uh, some of the best tunes ever written by Molly Hatchett, 38 Special, Blackfoot, Outlaws, Marshall Tucker Band, the Almond Brothers, and more. So it's a very rewarding project for me in a lot of ways. And, you know, every time I listen to it, and I listen to it a lot, it, it blows me away. And uh, I'm playing a song from, from the album each week on my radio show. And listening back to the track, I find myself getting caught up and just enjoying listening to it. The response from the fans has been incredible and uh, just really proud of this. It's unique. It's unlike anything I've ever done. And I think it's really good. It's great. And by the way, uh, the Molly Hatchet song, uh, Flirting with Disaster, is to me their best song and to me one of the top 20 songs of all time. So good. And, and fun fact, you and Molly Hatchet share something in common. You have both covered Kiss songs in your career. Huh? There you go. Well... They, you know, who hasn't covered a Kiss song? I mean, if you haven't covered a Kiss song, you will, right? Right. Um, you have to at some point. thank you to, to you, Mitch LaFont, for that uh, Rock and Roll Hell, which is still one of the greatest Kiss covers uh, of my entire career and certainly appreciative of that. But that Flirting with Disaster song that you mentioned, I listened to it yesterday because I'm playing it on my radio show this week. I listened to it uh, because I just couldn't couldn't bring myself to hit stop. I, I plugged it in. I go, 
I've listened to the whole thing top to bottom. And how relevant is that in times like these, when we are really flirting with disaster, talking about all the corruption and all the, the, the fact that we are living on the edge, flirting with disaster, that song still lyrically rings true today. And the energy and the music is, of course, timeless as well. It, it really is. It, it really is. So, so let me ask you this. Since we're talking about the, the current world situation, a lot of bands have taken releases for March, April, May, and they've said, F this, we're going we're gonna to release them in September, October, November 2021. You said, no, 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 no. We're, this is coming out and it's going to be out. And so talk to me about the decision to release an album in this context. I personally feel that it's a perfect time because everybody's sitting at home wanting to be entertained and can actually spend the time and listen to an album like we did back 30 years ago. Um, was it a struggle, a decision? Did you know, were you like, eh, I don't know what to do? Talk to me about releasing it in this context. Yeah, great question. And we did talk about it for about a minute. Bill Chavis, the head of Highball Music, and, and I had a conversation. We had the release date locked in for April 24th, and we thought, you know, of course, it has to come up in a discussion. I don't think either one of us really considered it seriously, but we thought, you know, we talked about it. Should we delay this release? And if you do delay it or postpone it, when do you postpone it until and why? Because right now, it's all we can do. This is the only gig I've got, man. This is, uh, this is my new music. I'm excited about it. There's no reason to put it off. And so far, the fan response has been overwhelming people are out there in their garage working on their motorcycle or their truck and they're cranking up south by south dakota they're out there on the on the patio grilling steaks and you know they're listening to our record it's a perfect summertime album and it's perfect one reviewer called it comfort food for the ears and i thought what a great quote that was it's comfort food it's something that uh that everybody needs and the response has, has been incredible now the only uh, hesitance I had was asking people to spend their money right now. It wasn't a matter of releasing the music. Everybody needs the music, and I think it's a perfect time to release an album like this. But it was tough for me to go online, on social media, on the website, and in interviews like this, and ask everybody to fork out their hard-earned cash, especially when a lot of our, our friends, fans, and family are out of work, they're not sure what they're going to do next week or next month. So it's a tough time to ask people to spend their money. What we've done with this is we've taken the price tag down as far as we possibly can and given the Patreon subscribers a discount to where you can get the signed album, the signed poster, the guitar pick, the, the sticker, the whole deal for less than $15. And that, that's, you know, compared to the last album, that's a substantial discount. And so we've taken the price down as far as we can, but that was the hardest part about making that decision was asking people to spend their money on it. And uh, so far, people have uh, been extremely supportive and unanimous saying it was well worth it. It is well worth it. A, a, a Keel, a Ron Keel, Ron Keel band, Ronnie Lee Keel, whatever whatever name <laughs> that is on the cover, it is definitely worth uh, forking out the bucks for. But all right, let me ask you this, because you just mentioned reviews. And this has nothing to do with the interview, but I'm going to throw it out there. When I used to write for magazines, they used to ask me to write reviews. And I hated it because there is no reason for you, the reader, 
to care at all what I say about an album. If I don't like the new Bjork and you do, well, then you do. And if I love the new C.C. DeVille solo album and you don't, I don't care. So how important is review are reviews to you? And do you take stock in them at all? I mean, I know you just quoted one, so you, you must give it some importance. I do. I take a lot of stock in it because journalists like you or anybody else who's talking about the record, reviewing it, you just reviewed it yourself. You said any Ron Hill album is well worth the money. Now, I could take that quote. I could use it because that's Mitch LaFont talking right yes. there. Right? Go ahead and do that. Last time said, <laughs> I will. I will. Eddie Trunk said about the last album, this is good stuff. You know I mean? I, saw, I, I, I do appreciate that. And the fact that uh, the fans need to know what people like you think about it. What is it? You're, not only are you saying I like it or I don't like it, but a lot of these reviews are describing the album, what it means to them. A lot of these people were Keel fans growing up in the 80s, listening to my music at the time, and they're explaining to the audience on my behalf what I've done, how I've evolved, who I am now, what I'm doing, and how it relates to Keel, Steeler, Black Sabbath, all the stuff I did in the 80s. They are bridging that gap for me, and they are my mouthpiece to the public, so I do appreciate it. Every good review means a lot to me, and sometimes the facts get misconstrued. Um, I saw one the other day that was very complimentary, and the guy obviously really loved the record, but every time he would try and cite a fact about me or my career or my history, it was a little bit wrong, and I don't want to call him out on that. Um, History is written by... Wikipedia or Mitch LaFont, I don't know. <laughs> History's win- written by the winners. No, no, but it's just funny because, you know, growing up in the 70s, I liked Aerosmith and Kiss and all, and all the band, especially Kiss, whether it's Rolling Stone magazine, it was one bad review after another, and I just kept thinking, I don't effing care if you don't like Love Gun. I love it. I really don't care if you don't like Creatures of the Night. I love it. So that's sort yeah. of where I, I, I cut my teeth on reviews going, you know what? I don't care if it got a one on five. I dig it. I think uh, our first review, Mitch, back in the day, the very first when Right to Rock came out, and we were finally signed to a major label, and Gene Simmons is producing the Right to Rock, Big Splash, big review in Billboard magazine, and they just trashed it, man. They took that record and tore it a new one. And so I think that it it, it does it does affect you. You can't you can't uh, please everyone. I've I've learned through the years and through the decades that, yeah, I've, I've had some success. I've sold a few million records. I've seen all my dreams come true. I'm very thankful for my opportunities and my accomplishments. But if you sell 3 million records, that means there's billions of people that don't like you or don't want what you do. And, and you got to be able to live with that. Let it roll off the back of your shoulders. Every time somebody gives me a, you know, a hard time, whether it's a fan on social media or a bad review, then uh, you kind of let it, slide off the back of your shoulders and just move on. You, know, you do what you do. And, and uh, I think that I've tried to, at this point in my career, for, for the last decade or more with songs uh, like the, that are on this new album, the, the Covers album, the Fight Like a Band album from last year, Metal Cowboy, which came before that. There's, there's something special about the songs that resonates with everyone. It's well-produced. It's well-performed. And no, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but... If you say it sucks or you say it's it's not good, that's your opinion. But you can't say it's not well done. It's uh, I'm very proud of my work and and uh, I'm proud of the fans that that have stood 
their ground with me and said, no, nah, it's, it's not the same guy that we listened to or bought in 85, but he's still doing good work and I'm enjoying what I'm hearing. So I appreciate all those reviews and all the fan responses. Every, every person that says something positive or listens to the record and gets something good out of it, that, that's fine with me. All right, fair enough. But the good thing, though, now is on social media, you can block them. So, yeah, you know. I don't do that very often, man. It takes it takes a lot for me to, to block somebody. I let everybody have their say. Uh, but my social media, that's my house online. You don't you're not going to come into my house and piss on the rug. No, you know, if, if I don't like what you're doing or what you're saying. And it's not necessarily if you're saying it about me like last week. Right. Um, we promoted an article by Jill Menachetti, the manager of Y&T. Yes. And Jill is Which I shared as well. Good article. Yes. And that was a great article. And it wasn't us complaining. It was me and the guys in Striper, the guys in Y&T, Jeff Scott Soto. We're not complaining. We're just being honest and telling people what it's like in our lives and in our careers at this time. And uh, I had a couple of negative comments when I posted that review and uh, people take it too far. And, and on Facebook or any other type of social media, everybody's a genius. Everybody's fearless. And they can say and do whatever they want behind the the security of that computer screen. And I will call them out on it. If you say something out of line or do something out of line, I will call them out. Uh, but if you want to, I'm fair game. You could say whatever you want about me. But... Um, that, that, that brings me to another great topic, Mitch, because yes. you are uh, extremely involved in social media. Correct. And um, I had a manager sharing. the other day call me an influencer, and I was like, uh-huh, sure. sure. Yeah? yeah sure, sure I am. I'm, I'm pretty sure people knew about Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, and Kiss way before I ever got to Twitter. But anyway, uh, I just Well, find- you are, and uh, you know that... The, the fact that uh, we're out there fighting the good fight and doing what we got to do to to maintain that relationship with our fans, our listeners, your listeners, your your uh, readers, and so forth, that's important. And it's it's important to be honest and real. Yes. Okay. Well, let me ask you this, because we, we were talking, you mentioned back in the day with, with the Gene Simmons album and so on and so forth. Uh, around that time, there was, of course, work on the Black Sabbath thing, and you had been called in to audition, and so on and so forth. We, we've discussed that in a previous interview, so we're not going to retell the entire story. But I was just speaking with uh, Victor Langen of kick and he tells a story of how he was writing songs and giving them to Spencer Proffer, and without his knowledge, Spencer took these songs and hustled them off over to Black Sabbath. And then Ian Gillen left the band and nothing happened. Um, but in between that, Ian leaving and... Uh, n- not Ian. Um, yeah, Ian leaving. Uh, talk to me about... Uh, were you involved at all with, with any of those songs? Did, did you did you hear the name Victor Langan? Had you heard the name Kick-Axe? Well, the guys in Kick-Axe, that was uh, certainly on my radar because we were all recording, doing demos and Spencer Proffer was producing these acts right after the quiet riot metal health, 10 million plus album sales. Spencer was the guy and he had signed kick acts, produced that record. I think he did King Cobra as well. And King Cobra ended up doing one of those songs, hunger, 
which was a kick-ass song, which I recorded for my Black Sabbath demo. So it's a very small circle there at Pasha Studios in 1983-84 when I was the lead singer of Black Sabbath for a short period of time. And that's why the whole deal fell apart. I think Spencer got greedy. I think he had these songs in his stable or in his catalog that he owned the publishing on. And if he could get Black Sabbath to cut five or six of those tunes, you know that the financial repercussions of that, especially if he owned, what, 99% of the publishing royalties on those songs. So that's why he was having me demo those songs for Sabbath and why he was pushing those songs on Black Sabbath. He was trying to make them into a commercial 80s hair metal band. And that's not who Sabbath is, man. Cody and Geezer weren't having any of it. And Spencer got fired. I got caught in the crossfire. But yeah, those songs on my Black Sabbath demo, I'm pretty sure they were all kick-ass songs. And many of the guys in kick-ass, I believe, played the instruments on the tracks as well. So uh, a very, very small circle there. And it, it did backfire uh, for, for both Spencer Proffer and for Ron Keel. But uh, it's a nice little historical Nice little tip. Uh, so okay, so so because I, Victor tells the story of he wrote these songs for the next Kick Axe album, and Spencer turned around and used them for a yeah, Transformers movie and for uh, King Cobra and for. So you actually got to sing on some of these Kick Axe songs. That's what you just I said. I did, and I actually posted <laughs> that 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 uh, hunger demo on my Patreon page. The fans have been clamoring for the Black Sabbath demo for all these years. And- uh, what what happened was Dana Strum came in and produced my Black Sabbath demo. Jakey oh, Lee wow. came by the there studio to give me a pep talk. Dana Strum came in and Spencer hired Dana. Said, "Get this guy, you know, on on these tracks." And, and the the vocals on that demo are absolutely out of control. Because what I was doing, I mean, I was showing off to the best of my ability to show Black Sabbath what I could do, and that Dana was digging even deeper trying to get this un- these ungodly, loud, high, piercing, long screams out of me. And so the vocals, actual vocals on that demo are, are pretty impressive. The, the songs, that, that there's a reason they were reject kick-ass songs. And probably, uh, I know that, uh, like we said, King Cobra cut that song Hunger, which was a single for them. And that was also on the Black Sabbath demo for me. But uh it was uh, an amazing experience and to, to do the demo and for Tony and geezer to hear it and hire me. And we signed a contract. I have a signed contract on my office wall that you know, I was the lead singer of black Sabbath. I got to be Don Arden. I mean, their manager at the time. And dude, what a scary, I mean, scary, scary dude. I mean, he, he sent me down. He read me the riot act. He told me how much I was getting paid. He told me what I had to do, what was expected of me. And, he was a hard ass. I said, dude, I'm the lead singer of Black Sabbath. You know, bring it on. Whatever whatever you want, I'm here for you. And uh, it's an amazing experience. And hanging out with Tony and Geezer, uh, listening to them wish they could just get Ozzy back somehow. Uh, and, you know, eventually they did, and the rest is history. But a uh, nice little chapter in, in my a, book, in my life story. and. Uh, I've, I've been able to now, as, as we spoke about off the air, I've been able to relive that fantasy and be as close as I'm ever going to get to being the lead singer of Black Sabbath with this new Emerald Sabbath album. The website's emeraldsabbath.com. And I was chosen along with some other Black Sabbath alumni, including Vinnie Apice, who did the drum tracks, and 
uh, so, Tony Martin and who else? Dave Walker's on the record. Beth Bevan, who was drumming during the time when I was in Sabbath. Bev was the drummer and played on Born Again. And uh, we got together and recorded a tribute album of, of Sabbath classics. And I got to sing one song from Ozzy, Hole in the Sky, which is a, an iconic Ozzy classic. And then I got to sing Trashed from Ian Gillen. And I got to do my version of Die Young, originally sung by Ronnie James Dio on the Heaven and Hell album. So I, I finally got to, to live that dream and sing those songs and, and bring them to life for just for even for my personal gratification. And Ronnie was a friend of mine, man. And I, I think if he's listening from wherever he is, heaven or hell, I think Ronnie would approve. Oh yeah, he would. Uh, just anyway, just it's just great stuff, and it's it's amazing how we really are at a six degrees of separation. I mean, here I am. I'm interviewing the guy from Kickaxe. He's telling me this story, and it turns out that it was the the period that you were there. And then you just mentioned Dana Strum. I actually spoke to Dana yesterday. We're going to hopefully do an interview in about two or three weeks from now. So, boy, what a what a small, tight, friendly circle. Oh, cool. Um, I do want to yeah. ask you one more thing before before we head off. You did cover Blackfoot on this Train Train, a song uh, previously covered by Warrant, actually. Um, the band Blackfoot, they they are still around, but they're Blackfoot 2.0. They are very clear about it. There's no original members. We're going to go out with this new lineup, and, and we're going to reestablish the brand. Um, I personally think that's fine. I mean, if, if fans want to come out and hear the songs, whatever. It, have more power to you. What do you think of that concept of being upfront and saying, hey, listen, we have changed everybody, but we're keeping the brand. Come out and enjoy these songs anyway. I am all for it, Mitch. And as, as being a huge KISS fan like you are, I could turn that question back on you. But I would, I would support KISS without Gene and Paul. I would support Star Trek without William Shatner. And, of course, that franchise, that brand has lived on through the years with different cast members. Tarzan, James Bond, these are iconic characters from our culture. Why shouldn't they be reinvented, recreated, and portrayed by newer, younger, different uh, actors, singers, whatever? And uh, so I, I fully support that, and I would love to see the new Blackfoot. In fact, I would love to be on tour with those guys. It would be a perfect match, RKB and the new Blackfoot 2.0. I'm a huge fan, so uh, I, I support Ricky Medlock and in his decision to yep. kind of reinvent that band and launch them in his own image and all that. I think it's cool as hell. It is. And they put out an album in uh, 2016 called Southern Native with, with yeah. this new lineup. It's a great album. There, there's nothing wrong with that album. So fans go check that out. And, and, you know, when you say, would I support kiss with new lineup? Yeah. Listen, why not? I've always compared it to a baseball team. So Babe Ruth is not a Yankee anymore. Does that mean the Yankees have to change their name and change their uniform? If you go to the game and they win and you cheer and you go home happy, what is the problem? And so if you go to Kiss 2.0 in 2028 and you go home happy, what's the problem? And if you're not interested, you stay home. What's the problem? I mean, I, I just, I don't see what the problem is. And, and I'm also of, of the opinion that uh, we're down to our last, you know, 5, 10, 15 years with these bands. I don't see Alice Cooper touring in 2033. I don't see, yeah. you know, 
So just take it for what it is. Enjoy it. I know my mom loves Elvis and Frank Sinatra. Do you know when the last time I went to an Elvis concert with my mom is? Uh, never. We can't go. <laughs> so, right? So if have Keel you been comes, to see an Elvis impersonator with your mom? I have not, but I guess I should. No, but, but, <laughs> but the point being is that if, if Keel comes into town and, and there's a different guy on drums, and if Kiss comes into town and there's a different... Go, and if it puts a smile on your face, that's it. That's all. And don't worry about it's who's playing It's all about entertainment, on. man. It exactly. is. Exactly. No, I think it's totally cool. And, and I fully expected, you know, it, getting back to the Kiss thing, because I know you and I are both huge Kiss fans. I fully expected, and still kind of do, I expect that there will be a Kiss 10 years from now, and Paul and Gene might not be up there singing and playing. But, you know, I, I, I think we all, either it's wishful thinking or it's just an interesting uh, topic to discuss. But uh, certainly those bands have been a, a part of our our lives and our are the soundtrack of our youth and our our entire lives. So yeah, uh, and you, you yeah, know you, you just I, call I think it. That's one thing we bring home on you, this you, new South by South Dakota album. These these songs, these bands are timeless, and a lot of our fans now are these are Ron Keel fans. They're Ron Keel band fans. They had they weren't even born when the Right to Rock came out, and they're in the front row with their hand in the air and they're singing along, and and they, they we're bringing these songs to a new generation of rock fans that it's all classic rock. And there's a reason it's classic because it's really, really good. And I'm very proud of the new record. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk the rock with you and rock the talk with Mitch LaFon and promote the new South by South Dakota album. And if every one of your listeners would at least just check it out at ronkeel.com, then, uh, that's, then I've done my job for the day. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, I appreciate you more than you know, man. Absolutely. And uh, I'll just say one thing about the Kiss thing. Uh, if if Kiss goes on and calls, you know, an evening with Kiss or Kiss the musical experience, whatever, and they come yep. to town, I actually think it might be better than the current Kiss because they would be more apt to cover the entire catalog and do some kind of historical perspective and, and do songs that the current band is not doing not out of any kind of maliciousness. They just are not doing it because they're playing their classic. So I think, you know, it actually might be beneficial to have these bands, the Van Halen experience. I don't oh, know. yeah. I don't know. You'll I'm, see it. And I'll meet you in Vegas 10 years from now, Mission. We'll go watch the, the Van Halen experience or the Kiss experience, just like we're now seeing the Michael Jackson hologram or the Dio hologram or the Elvis impersonator show in Vegas. Uh, this is timeless music. And, and, uh, just like Beethoven or, or you know, any of the, the timeless music that has been created through the years, it will live on. And rock and roll will never yeah, die. It won't. Uh, we've been through some good times, some bad times, some tough times, some rough times. But rock and roll is here to stay, man. It's part of the fabric of our culture, and it will never die. And uh, I'm just glad to be a very small thread in, in that tapestry. Absolutely. And by the way, when you go see a symphony orchestra do Mozart and Beethoven, how come nobody ever says, oh, it's not the real Beethoven. Like, what are you? Nobody says that. Shut up. Just go to the show and enjoy it. Exactly. <laughs> it's not exactly. the real thing. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's all about entertainment and uh, that's what we're here to do. And then that's what I'm doing with this new record. I mean, these aren't my songs, but every song that I sing, once I write it, now I'm covering it. And so I feel like these are my songs just as much as the right to rock or somebody's waiting or because the night was a cover song, which was a huge hit for us back in the day, rock and roll outlaw, rock and roll hell. Some of the great songs in my career that I've covered, you know, they, they are my songs as well. I'm just happy to share them with whoever wants to listen. Absolutely. And on that, uh, merci, monsieur. Thank you always, 
always a pleasure. Let's do it again soon. And uh, folks, do check out Ron on uh, Patreon, uh, a, a platform that I guess I should get onto at some point. But uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a discussion oh, I, for another I, moment. I, yeah, I agree. I'd be I'd be first in line to subscribe to the Mitch Lafon Patreon uh, if and when you do launch that. It's a great platform, and I support some other artists on there. Mark Striegel from Talking Metal, Talking Rock. He's got a Patreon. I'm a subscriber. I pay five bucks a month to hear him talk to rock and rock to talk. So uh, I highly advise. Yep. And Mark's a great guy, by the way. Sorry to cut you off. Mark is Mark is is a genuine. uh, I don't want to say dude, but I'm going to say dude. He's Mark's Mark's the real deal, man. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And he'll be glad that we plugged his show on the Mitch Lafon. Oh, listen, happily, I have, listen, I am going to tell you right now, go listen to Mark Striegel and uh, Talking Rock, great show, great host, go listen to Eddie Trunk, because without Eddie supporting bands from 1995 to 2005, a lot of this wouldn't be existing, it was easy to promote this in 1985, it was Uh a pain in the ass to promote it in 1995, and you know what, he stuck it out, so good on him. And, uh, you know, I'll plug my friend uh, Jeremy White. Go listen to him on the Beat 92.5 in Montreal. There you go. Uh, It's family. Well said. Well done. Mitch LaFon, and we have talked the rock once again, my friend. Thanks again for having me back on the show. It's always a pleasure to speak to you and to get back in the ring with one of the heavyweights. There you go. Merci, monsieur. Bonsoir. (laughs) Cheers, brother. Here's Paul Stanley to tell you why he doesn't want to shake your hand. Some people might have a little rock and roll Ugh, not even cold gin will kill those germs. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon.